Section four of the seven. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Well, dressing for dinner is a great tonic, especially if one shaves. My spirits rose as I lathered my face. I smiled to my reflection in the mirror. The afterglow of the sun came through the window behind the dressing table, but I had switched on all the lights. My new silver-topped bottles and things made a fine array. Tonight I was going to shine, too. I felt that I might yet be the life and soul of the party. Anyway, my new evening suit was without a fault. And meanwhile, this new razor was perfect. Having shaved down, I lathered myself again, and proceeded to shave up. It was then that I uttered a sharp sound and swung round on my heel. No one was there. Yet this I knew. Stephen Braxton had just looked over my shoulder. I had seen the reflection of his face beside mine, craned forward to the mirror. I had met his eyes. He had been with me. This I knew. I turned to look again at that mirror. One of my cheeks was all covered with blood. I staunched it with a towel. Three long cuts where the razor had slipped and skipped. I plunged the towel into cold water and held it to my cheek. The bleeding went on, alarmingly. I rang the bell. No one came. I vowed I wouldn't bleed to death for Braxton. I rang again. At last a very tall powdered footman appeared, more reproachful-looking than sympathetic, as though I hadn't ordered the dressing-case specially on his behalf. He said he thought one of the housemaids would have some sticking-plaster. He was very sorry he was needed downstairs, but he would tell one of the housemaids. I continued to dab and to curse. The blood flowed less. I showed great spirit. I vowed Braxton should not prevent me from going down to dinner. But a pretty sight I was when I did go down. Pale but determined, with three long strips of black sticking-plaster forming a sort of Z on my left cheek. Mr. Hilary Maltby at Keeb, Literature's Ambassador. I don't know how late I was. Dinner was in full swing. Some servant piloted me to my place. I sat down, unobserved. The woman on either side of me was talking to her other neighbour. I was near the Duchess's end of the table. Soup was served to me, that dark red soup that you pour cream into, borscht. I felt it would steady me. I raised the first spoonful to my lips, and my hand gave a sudden jerk. I was aware of two separate horrors, a horror that had been, a horror that was. Braxton had vanished. Not for more than an instant had he stood scowling at me from behind the opposite diners. Not for more than the fraction of an instant, but he had left his mark on me. I gazed down with a frozen stare at my shirt-front, at my white waistcoat, both dark with borscht. I rubbed them with a napkin, I made them worse. I looked at my glass of champagne, I raised it carefully and drained it at one draught. It nerved me, but behind that shirt-front was a broken heart. The woman on my left was Lady Thisbe Crowborough. I don't know who was the woman on my right. She was the first to turn and see me. I thought it best to say something about my shirt-front at once. I said it to her sideways without showing my left cheek. Her handsome eyes rested on the splashes. She said, after a moment's thought, that they looked rather gay. 
she said she thought the eternal black and white of men's evening clothes was so very dreary she did her best lady thisby crowborough did her best too i suppose but breeding isn't proof against all possible shocks she visibly started at sight of me and my z i explained that i had cut myself shaving i said with an attempted lightness that shy men ought always to cut themselves shaving it made such a good conversational opening but surely she said after a pause you don't cut yourself on purpose she was an abysmal fool i didn't think so at the time she was lady thisbury crowborough this fact hallowed her that we didn't get on at all well was a misfortune for which i blamed only myself and my repulsive appearance and the unforgettable horror that distracted me nor did i blame lady thisby for turning rather soon to the man on her other side the woman on my right was talking to the man on her other side so that i was left a prey to secret memory and dread i wasn't wondering wasn't attempting to explain i was merely remembering and dreading and how odd one is on the top layer of my consciousness i hated to be seen talking to no one mr maltby at keeb i caught the duchess's eye once or twice and she nodded encouragingly as who should say you do look rather awful and you do seem rather out of it but i don't for a moment regret having asked you to come presently i had another chance of talking i heard myself talk my feverish anxiety to please rather touched me but i noticed that the eyes of my listener wandered and yet i was sorry when the ladies went away i had a sense of greater exposure men who hadn't seen me saw me now the duke as he came round to the duchess's end of the table must have wondered who i was but he shyly offered me his hand as he passed and said it was so good of me to come i had thought of slipping away to put on another shirt and waistcoat but had decided that this would make me the more ridiculous i sat drinking port poison to me after the champagne but a lulling poison and listened to noblemen with unstained shirt-fronts talking about the australian cricket-match is rubicon bezique still played in england there was a mania for it at that time the floor of keeb's palladio gargantuan hall was dotted with innumerable little tables i didn't know how to play my hostess told me i must come and amuse the dear old duke and duchess of mull and led me to a remote sofa on which an old gentleman had just sat down beside an old lady they looked at me with a dim kind interest my hostess had set me and left me on a small gilt chair in front of them before going she had conveyed to them loudly one of them was very deaf that i was the famous writer it was a long time before they understood that i was not a political writer the duke asked me after a troubled pause whether i had known old mr abraham hayward the duchess said i was too young to have known mr hayward and asked if i knew her clever friend mr mallock I said I had just been reading Mr. Mallock's new novel. I heard myself shouting a confused praise of the plot. The place where we were sitting was near the foot of the great marble staircase. I said how beautiful the staircase was. The Duchess of Mull said she had never cared very much for that staircase. The Duke, after a pause, said that he had 
often heard old Mr. Abraham Hayward hold a whole dinner-table. There were long and frequent pauses, between which I heard myself talking loudly, frantically, sinking lower and lower in the esteem of my small audience. I felt like a man drowning under the eyes of an elderly couple who sit on the bank regretting that they can offer no assistance. Presently the Duke looked at his watch and said to the Duchess that it was time to be thinking of bed. They rose, as it were, from the bank, and left me, so to speak, under water. I watched them as they passed slowly out of sight up the marble staircase, which I had mispraised. I turned and surveyed the brilliant silent scene presented by the card-players. I wondered what old Mr. Abraham Hayward would have done in my place. Would he have just darted in among those tables and held them? I presumed that he would not have stolen silently away, quickly and cravenly away, up the marble staircase, as I did. I don't know which was the greater, the relief or the humiliation of finding myself in my bedroom. Perhaps the humiliation was the greater. There, on a chair, was my grand-new smoking-suit laid out for me. What a mockery! Once I had foreseen myself wearing it in the smoking-room at a late hour, the centre of a group of eminent men, entranced by the brilliancy of my conversation. And now! I was nothing but a small, dull, soup-stained, sticking-plastered, nerve-racked recluse. Nerves, yes. I assured myself that I had not seen what I had seemed to see. All very odd, of course, and very unpleasant, but easily explained. Nerves. Excitement of coming to Keeb too much for me. A good night's rest, that was all I needed. Tomorrow I should laugh at myself. I wondered that I wasn't tired physically. There my grand-new silk pyjamas were, yet I felt no desire to go to bed, none while it was still possible for me to go. The little writing-table at the foot of my bed seemed to invite me. I had brought with me in my portmanteau a sheaf of letters, letters that I had purposely left unanswered in order that I might answer them on Keeb Hall notepaper. These the footman had neatly laid beside the blotting-pad on that little writing-table at the foot of the bed. I regretted that the note-paper stacked there had no ducal coronet on it. What matter? The address sufficed. If I hadn't yet made a good impression on the people who were staying here, I could at any rate make one on the people who weren't. I sat down, I set to work, I wrote a prodigious number of fluent and graceful notes. Some of these were to strangers who wanted my autograph. I was always delighted to send my autograph, and never perfunctory in the manner of sending it. Dear Madam, I remember writing to somebody that night, were it not that you make your request for it so charmingly, I should hesitate to send you that which rarity alone can render valuable. Yours truly, Hilary Maltby. I remember reading this over, and wondering whether the word render looked rather commercial. It was in the act of wondering thus that I raised my eyes from the note-paper, and saw through the bars of the brass bedstead the naked sole of a large human foot, saw beyond it the calf of a great leg, a nightshirt, and the face of Stephen Braxton. I did not move. I thought of making a dash for the door, dashing out into the corridor, shouting at the top of my voice for help. I sat quite still. What kept me to my chair was the fear that if I tried to reach the door, 
Braxton would spring off the bed to intercept me. If I sat quite still, perhaps he wouldn't move. I felt that if he moved, I should collapse utterly. I watched him, and he watched me. He lay there with his body half-raised, one elbow propped on the pillow, his jaw sunk on his breast, and from under his black brows he watched me steadily. No question of mere nerves now, that hope was gone. No mere optical delusion, this abiding presence. Here Bracton was. He and I were together in the bright, silent room. How long would he be content to watch me? Eleven nights ago he had given me one horrible look. It was this look that I had to meet, in infinite prolongation now, not daring to shift my eyes. He lay as motionless as I sat. I did not hear him breathing, but I knew, by the rise and fall of his chest under his nightshirt, that he was breathing heavily. Suddenly I started to my feet, for he had moved. He had raised one hand slowly. He was stroking his chin, and as he did so, and as he watched me, his mouth gradually slackened to a grin. It was worse, it was more malign, this grin, than the scowl that remained with it and its immediate effect on me was an impulse that was as hard to resist as it was hateful. The window was open, it was nearer to me than the door, I could have reached it in time. Well, I lived to tell the tale. I stood my ground. And there dawned on me now a new fact in regard to my companion. I had all the while been conscious of something abnormal in his attitude, a lack of ease in his gross possessiveness. I saw now the reason for this effect. The pillow on which his elbow rested was still uniformly puffed and convex, like a pillow untouched. His elbow rested but on the very surface of it, not changing the shape of it at all. His body made not the least furrow along the bed. He had no weight. I knew that if I leaned forward and thrust my hand between those brass rails to clutch his foot, I should clutch nothing. He wasn't tangible, he was realistic, he wasn't real, he was opaque, he wasn't solid. Odd as it may seem to you, these certainties took the edge off my horror. During that walk with Lady Rodfitten I had been appalled by the doubt that haunted me, but now the very confirmation of that doubt gave me a sort of courage. I could cope better with anything tonight than with actual Braxton and the measure of the relief I felt is that I sat down again on my chair. More than once there came to be a wild hope that the thing might be an optical delusion after all. Then would I shut my eyes tightly, shaking my head sharply. But when I looked again, there the presence was, of course. It, he, not actual Braxton, but roughly speaking Braxton, had come to stay. I was conscious of intense fatigue, taught and alert though every particle of me was, so that I became, in the course of that ghastly night, conscious of a great envy also. For some time before the dawn came in through the window, Braxton's eyes had been closed. Little by little now his head drooped sideways, then fell on his forearm and rested there. He was asleep. Cut off from sleep, I had a great longing for smoke. I had cigarettes on me, I had matches on me, but I didn't dare to strike a match. The sound might have waked Braxton up. In slumber he was less terrible, though perhaps more odious. I wasn't so much afraid now as indignant. It's intolerable, I sat saying to myself, utterly intolerable. 
I had to bear it nevertheless. I was aware that I had, in some degree, brought it on myself. If I hadn't interfered and lied, actual Braxton would have been here at Keeb, and I at this moment sleeping soundly. But this was no excuse for Braxton. Braxton didn't know what I had done. He was merely envious of me. And, wanly I puzzled it out in the dawn, by the very force of the envy, hatred, and malice in him, he had projected hither into my presence this simulacrum of himself. I had known that he would be thinking of me. I had known that the thought of me at Keeb Hall would be of the last bitterness to his most sacred feelings. But I had reckoned without the passionate force and intensity of the man's nature. If by the same strength and intensity he had merely projected himself as an invisible guest under the Duchess's roof, if his feat had been wholly, as perhaps it was in part, a feat of mere wistfulness and longing, then I should have felt really sorry for him, and my conscience would have soundly rated me in his behalf. But no, if the wretched creature had been invisible to me, I shouldn't have thought of Braxton at all, except with gladness that he wasn't here. That he was visible to me, and to me alone, wasn't any sign of proper remorse within me. It was but the gauge of his incredible ill-will. Well, it seemed to me that he was avenged, with a vengeance. There I sat, hot-browed from sleeplessness, cold in the feet, stiff in the legs, cowed and indignant all through, sat there in the broadening daylight and in that new evening suit of mine with the braxtonized shirt-front and waistcoat that by day were more than ever loathsome. Literature's Ambassador at Keeb I rose gingerly from my chair and caught sight of my face, of my braxtonized cheek in the mirror. I heard the twittering of birds in distant trees. I saw through my window the elaborate landscape of the Duke's grounds, all soft in the grey bloom of early morning. I think I was nearer to tears than I have ever been since I was a child. But the weakness passed. I turned towards the personage on my bed, and summoning all such power as was in me, willed him to be gone. My effort was not without result, an inadequate result. Braxton turned in his sleep. I resumed my seat and, and sat up staring and blinking at a tall man with red hair. I must have fallen asleep, I said. Yes, sir, he replied, and his toneless voice touched in me one or two springs of memory. I was at Keeb, this was the footman who looked after me, but why wasn't I in bed? Had I? No, surely it had been no nightmare. Surely I had seen Braxton on that white bed. The footman was impassively putting away my smoking suit. I was too dazed to wonder what he thought of me. Nor did I attempt to stifle a cry when a moment later, turning in my chair, I beheld Braxton leaning moodily against the mantelpiece. "'Are you unwell, sir?' asked the footman. "'No,' I said faintly. "'I'm quite well.' "'Yes, sir. Will you wear the blue suit or the grey? "'The grey. Yes, sir.' It seemed almost incredible that he didn't see Braxton. He didn't appear to me one whit more solid than the night-shirted brute who stood against the mantelpiece and watched him lay out my things. Shall I let your bathwater run now, sir? Please, yes. Your bathroom's the second door to the left, sir. He went out with my bath-towel and sponge, leaving me alone with Braxton. 
I rose to my feet, mustering once more all the strength that was in me. Hoping against hope, with set teeth and clenched hands, I faced him, thrust forth my will at him, with everything but words commanded him to vanish, to cease to be. Suddenly, utterly, he vanished. And you can imagine the truly exquisite sense of triumph that thrilled me and continued to thrill me till I went into the bathroom and found him in my bath. Quivering with rage, I returned to my bedroom. Intolerable, I heard myself repeating, like a parrot that knew no other word. A bath was just what I had needed. Could I have lain for a long time basking in very hot water, and then have sponged myself with cold water, I should have emerged calm and brave, comparatively so at any rate. I should have looked less ghastly, and have had less of a headache and something of an appetite when I went down to breakfast. Also, I shouldn't have been the very first guest to appear on the scene. There were five or six round tables, instead of last night's long table. At the further end of the room, the butler and two other servants were lighting the little lamps under the hot dishes. I didn't like to make myself ridiculous by running away. On the other hand, was it right for me to begin breakfast all by myself at one of these round tables? I supposed it was but I dreaded to be found eating alone in that vast room by the first downcomer. I sat dallying with dry toast and watching the door. It occurred to me that Braxton might occur at any moment. Should I be able to ignore him? Some man and wife, a very handsome couple, were the first to appear. They nodded and said good morning when they noticed me on their way to the hot dishes. I rose uncomfortably, guiltily, and sat down again. I rose again when the wife drifted to my table, followed by the husband with two steaming plates. She asked me if it wasn't a heavenly morning, and I replied with nervous enthusiasm that it was. She then ate kedgery in silence. "'You just finishing, what?' the husband asked, looking at my plate. "'Oh, no, no, only just beginning,' I assured him, and helped myself to butter. He then ate kedgery in silence." He looked like some splendid bull, and she like some splendid cow, grazing. I envied them their eupeptic calm. I surmised that ten thousand Braxtons would not have prevented them from sleeping soundly by night and grazing steadily by day. Perhaps their stolidity infected me a little, or perhaps what braced me was the great quantity of strong tea that I consumed. Anyhow, I had begun to feel that if Braxton came in now, I shouldn't blench nor falter. Well, I wasn't put to the test. Plenty of people drifted in, but Braxton wasn't one of them. Lady Rodfitten, no, she didn't drift, she marched in, and presently, at an adjacent table, she was drawing a comparison in clarion tones between Jean and Edouard de Resky. It seemed to me that her own voice had much in common with Edouard's. Even more was it akin to a military band. I found myself beating time to it with my foot. Decidedly my spirits had risen. I was in a mood to face and outface anything. When I rose from the table and made my way to the door, I walked with something of a swing to the tune of Lady Rodfitten. My buoyancy didn't last long, though. There was no swing in my walk when, a little later, I passed out onto the spectacular terrace. I had seen my enemy again, and had beaten a furious retreat. No doubt I should see him yet again soon. 
here perhaps on this terrace two of the guests were bicycling slowly up and down the long paved expanse both of them smiling with pride in the new delicious form of locomotion there was a great array of bicycles propped neatly along the balustrade i recognized my own among them i wondered whether braxton had projected from clifford's inn an image of his own bicycle he may have done so but i have no evidence that he did i myself was bicycling when i next saw him but he i remember was on foot this was a few minutes later i was bicycling with dear lady rodfitten she seemed really to like me she had come out and accosted me heartily on the terrace asking me because of my sticking-plaster with whom i had fought a duel since yesterday i did not tell her with whom and she had already branched off on the subject of duelling in general she regretted the extinction of duelling in england and gave cogent reasons for her regret then she asked me what my next book was to be i confided that i was writing a sort of sequel aerial returns to mayfair she shook her head and with her usual soundness that sequels were very dangerous things and asked me to tell her briefly the lines along which i was working i did so she pointed out two or three weak points in my scheme she said she could judge better if i would let her see my manuscript she asked me to come and lunch with her next friday just our two selves at rodfitten house and to bring my manuscript with me need i say that i walked on air and now she said strenuously let us take a turn on our bicycles by this time there were a dozen riders on the terrace all of them smiling with pride and rapture we mounted and rode along together the terrace ran around two sides of the house and before we came to the end of it these words had provisionally marshalled themselves in my mind to eleanor countess of rodfitten this book which owes all to her wise counsel and unwearying supervision is gratefully dedicated by her friend the author smiled to masonically by the passing bicyclists and smiling masonically to them in return i began to feel that the rest of my visit would run smooth if only let's go a little faster let's race said lady rodfitten and we did so just our two selves i was on the side nearer to the balustrade and it was on that side that braxton suddenly appeared from nowhere solid-looking as a rock his arms akimbo less than three yards ahead of me so that i swerved involuntarily sharply striking broadside the front wheel of lady rodfitten and collapsing with her and with a crash of machinery to the ground i wasn't hurt she had broken my fall i wished i was dead she was furious she sat speechless with fury a crowd had quickly collected just as in the case of a street accident she accused me now to the crowd she said i had done it on purpose she said such terrible things of me that i think the crowd's sympathy must have veered towards me she was assisted to her feet i tried to be one of the assistants don't let him come near me she thundered i caught sight of braxton on the fringe of the crowd grinning at me it was all his fault i madly cried pointing at him everybody looked at mr balfour just behind whom braxton was standing there was a general murmur of surprise in which i have no doubt mr balfour joined 
he gave a charming blank deprecating smile i mean i can't explain what i mean i groaned lady rodfitten moved away refusing support limping terribly towards the house the crowd followed her solicitous i stood helplessly desperately where i was i stood an outlaw a speck on the now empty terrace mechanically i picked up my straw hat and wheeled the two bent bicycles to the balustrade i suppose mr balfour has a charming nature for he presently came out again on purpose i am sure to alleviate my misery he told me that lady rodfitten had suffered no harm he took me for a stroll up and down the terrace talking thoughtfully and enchantingly about things in general then having done his deed of mercy this good samaritan went back into the house my eyes followed him with gratitude but i was still bleeding from wounds beyond his skill i escaped down into the gardens i wanted to see no one still more did i want to be seen by no one i dreaded in every nerve of me my reappearance among those people i walked ever faster and faster to stifle the thought but in vain why hadn't i simply ridden through braxton i was aware of being now in the park among the great trees and undulations of wild green ground but nature did not achieve the task that mr balfour had attempted and my anguish was unassuaged i paused to lean against a tree in the huge avenue that led to the huge hateful house i leaned wondering whether the thought of re-entering that house were the more hateful because i should have to face my fellow guests or because i should probably have to face braxton a church bell began ringing somewhere and anon i was aware of another sound a twitter of voices a consignment of hatted and parasoled ladies was coming fast adown the avenue my first impulse was to dodge behind my tree but i feared that i had been observed so that what was left to me of self-respect compelled me to meet these ladies the duchess was among them i had seen her from afar at breakfast but not since she carried a prayer-book which she waved to me as i approached i was a disastrous guest but still a guest and nothing could have been prettier than her smile most of my men this week she said are pagans and all the others have dispatch-boxes to go through except the dear old duke of mull who's a member of the free kirk you're a pagan of course i said and indeed it was a heart cry that i should like very much to come to church if i shan't be in the way i rather abjectly added it didn't strike me that braxton would try to intercept me i don't know why but it never occurred to me as i walked briskly along beside the duchess that i should meet him so far from the house the church was in a corner of the park and the way to it was by a side path that branched off from the end of the avenue a little way along casting its shadow across the path was a large oak it was from behind this tree when we came to it that braxton sprang suddenly forth and tripped me up with his foot absurd to be tripped up by the mere semblance of a foot but remember i was walking quickly and the whole thing happened in a flash of time it was inevitable that i should throw out my hands and come down headlong just as though the obstacle had been as real as it looked down i came on palms and kneecaps and up i scrambled very much hurt and shaken and apologetic 
poor mr maltby really the duchess wailed for me in this latest of my mishaps some other lady chased my straw hat which had bowled far ahead two others helped to brush me they were all very kind with a quaver of mirth in their concern for me i looked furtively around for braxton but he was gone the palms of my hands were abraded with gravel the duchess said i must on no account come to church now i was utterly determined to reach that sanctuary i marched firmly on with the duchess come what might be on the way i wasn't going to be left out here i was utterly bent on winning at least one respite well i reached the little church without further molestation to be there seemed almost too good to be true the organ just as we entered sounded its first notes the ladies rustled into the front pew i being the one male of the party sat at the end of the pew beside the duchess i couldn't help feeling that my position was a proud one but i had gone through too much to take instant pleasure in it and was beset by thoughts of what new horror might await me on the way back to the house i hoped the service would not be brief the swelling and dwindling strains of the voluntary on the small organ were strangely soothing i turned to give an almost feudal glance to the simple villagers in the pews behind and saw a sight that cowed my soul braxton was coming up the aisle he came slowly casting a tourist's eye at the stained-glass windows on either side walking heavily yet with no sound of boots on the pavement he reached our pew there towering and glowering he halted as though demanding that we should make room for him a week later he edged sullenly into the pew instinctively i had sat tight back drawing my knees aside in a shudder of revulsion against contact but braxton did not push past me what he did was to sit slowly and fully down on me no not down on me down through me and around me what befell me was not mere ghastly contact with the intangible it was inclusion envelopment eclipse what bracton sat down on was not i but the back seat of the pew and what he sat back against was not my face and chest but the back of the pew i didn't realize this at the moment all i knew was a sudden black blotting out of all things an infinite and impenetrable darkness i dimly conjectured that i was dead what was wrong with me in point of fact was that my eyes with the rest of me were inside braxton you remember what a great hulking fellow braxton was i calculate that as we sat there my eyes were just beneath the roof of his mouth horrible out of the unfathomable depths of that pitch darkness i could yet hear the voluntary swelling and dwindling just as before it was by this i knew now that i wasn't dead and i suppose i must have craned my head forward for i had a sudden glimpse of things a close quick downward glimpse of a pepper and salt waistcoat and of two great hairy hands clasped across it then darkness again either i had drawn back my head or braxton had thrust his forward i don't know which are you all right the duchess's voice whispered and no doubt my face was ashen quite whispered my voice but this pathetic monosyllable was the last gasp of the social instinct in me 
Suddenly, as the voluntary swelled to its close, there was a great sharp shuffling noise. The congregation had risen to its feet at the entry of choir and vicar. Braxton had risen, leaving me in daylight. I beheld his towering back. The Duchess, beside him, glanced round at me, but I could not, dared not, stand up into that presented back, into that great waiting darkness. I did but clutch my hat from beneath the seat, and hurry distraught down the aisle, out through the porch, into the open air. Whither? To what goal? I didn't reason. I merely fled, like Orestes, fled like an automaton along the path we had come by. And was followed? Yes, yes. Glancing back across my shoulder, I saw that brute some twenty yards behind me, gaining on me. I broke into a sharper run. A few sickening moments later, he was beside me, scowling down into my face. I swerved, dodged, doubled on my tracks, but he was always at me. Now and again, for lack of breath, I halted, and he halted with me. And then, when I had got my wind, I would start running again, in the insane hope of escaping him. We came, by what twisting and turning course I know not, to the great avenue, and as I stood there in an agony of panting, I had a dazed vision of the distant hall. Really, I had quite forgotten I was staying at the Duke of Hertfordshire's. But Braxton hadn't forgotten. He planted himself in front of me. He stood between me and the house. Faint though I was, I could almost have laughed. Good heavens! Was that all he wanted? That I shouldn't go back there? Did he suppose I wanted to go back there with him? Was I the Duke's prisoner on parole? What was there to prevent me from just walking off to the railway station? I turned to do so. He accompanied me on my way. I thought that when once I had passed through the lodge gates, he might vanish, satisfied. But no, he didn't vanish. It was as though he suspected that if he let me out of his sight, I should sneak back to the house. He arrived with me, this quiet companion of mine, at the little railway station. Evidently he meant to see me off. I learned from an elderly and solitary porter that the next train to London was the 4-3. Well, Braxton saw me off by the 4-3. I reflected as I stepped up into an empty compartment that it wasn't yet twenty-four hours ago since I, or someone like me, had alighted at that station. The guard blew his whistle, the engine shrieked, and the train jolted forward and away, but I did not lean out of the window to see the last of my attentive friend. Really? Not twenty-four hours ago? Not twenty-four years? Maltby paused in his narrative. Well, well, he said, I don't want you to think I overrate the ordeal of my visit to Keeb. A man of stronger nerve than mine, and of greater resourcefulness, might have coped successfully with Bracton from first to last might have stayed on till Monday, making a very favourable impression on everyone all the while. Even as it was, even after my manifold failures and sudden flight, I don't say my position was impossible. I only say it seemed so to me. A man less sensitive than I, and less vain, might have cheered up after writing a letter of apology to his hostess, and have resumed his normal existence as though nothing very terrible had happened after all. 
I wrote a few lines to the Duchess that night, but I wrote amidst the preparations of my departure from England. I crossed the Channel the next morning. Throughout that Sunday afternoon with Braxton at the Keeb railway station, pacing the desolate platform with him, waiting in the desolating waiting-room with him, I was numb to regrets, and was thinking of nothing but the four-three. On the way to Victoria, my brain worked and my soul wilted. Every incident in my stay at Keeb stood out clear to me, a dreadful, a hideous pattern. I had done for myself so far as those people were concerned. And now that I had sampled them, what cared I for others? Too low for a hawk, too high for a buzzard. That homely old saying seemed to sum me up. And suppose I could still take pleasure in the company of my own old upper-middle class? How would that class regard me now? Gossip percolates. Little by little, I was sure, the story of my Keeb fiasco would leak down into the drawing-room of Mrs. Foster Dugdale. I felt I could never hold up my head in any company where anything of that story was known. Are you quite sure you've never heard anything? I assured Maltby that all I had known was the great bare fact of his having stayed at Keeb Hall. It's curious, he reflected. It's a fine illustration of the loyalty of those people to one another. I suppose there was a general agreement for the Duchess's sake that nothing should be said about her queer guest. But even if I had dared hope to be so efficiently hushed up, I couldn't have not fled. I wanted to forget. I wanted to leap into some void far away from all reminders. I leapt straight from Ryder Street into Vaux-la-Rochette, a place of which I had once heard that it was the least frequented seaside resort in Europe. I leapt leaving no address, leapt telling my landlord that if a suitcase and a portmanteau arrived for me, he could regard them, them and their contents, as his own for ever. I dare say the Duchess wrote me a kind little letter, forcing herself to express a vague hope that I would come again, some other time. I dare say Lady Rodfitton did not write reminding me of my promise to lunch on Friday, and bring aerial returns to Mayfair with me. I left that manuscript at Ryder Street, in my bedroom grate, a shuffle of ashes. Not that I'd given up all thought of writing, but I certainly wasn't going to write now about the two things I most needed to forget. I wasn't going to write about the British aristocracy, nor about any kind of supernatural presence. I did write a novel, my last, while I was at Vol. Mr. and Mrs. Robinson. Did you ever come across a copy of it? I nodded gravely. Ah, I wasn't sure, said Maltby, whether it was ever published. A dreary affair, wasn't it? I knew a great deal about suburban life. But, well, I suppose one can't really understand what one doesn't love, and one can't make good fun without real understanding. Besides, what chance of virtue is there for a book written merely to distract the author's mind? I had hoped to be healed by sea and sunshine and solitude. These things were useless. The labour of Mr. and Mrs. Robinson did help, a little. When I had finished it, I thought I might as well send it off to my publisher. 
he had given me a large sum of money down after ariel for my next book so large that i was rather loath to disgorge in the note i sent with the manuscript i gave no address and asked that the proof should be read in the office i didn't care whether the thing were published or not i knew it would be a dead failure if it were what mattered one more drop in the foaming cup of my humiliation i knew braxton would grin and gloat i didn't mind even that oh well i said braxton was in no mood for grinning and gloating the drones had already appeared maltby had never heard of the drones which i myself had remembered only in the course of his disclosures i explained to him that it was braxton's second novel and was by way of being a savage indictment of the british aristocracy that it was written in the worst possible taste but was so very dull that it fell utterly flat that braxton had forthwith taken with all of what maltby had called the passionate force and intensity of his nature to drink and had presently gone under and not re-emerged maltby gave signs of genuine though not deep emotion and cited two or three of the finest passages from a fawn on the cotswolds he even expressed a conviction that the drones must have been misjudged he said he blamed himself more than ever for yielding to that bad impulse at the soiree and yet he mused and yet honestly i can't find it in my heart to regret that i did yield i can only wish that all had turned out as well in the end for braxton as for me i wish he could have won out as i did into a great and lasting felicity for about a year after i had finished mr and mrs robinson i wandered from place to place trying to kill memory shunning all places frequented by the english at last i found myself in lucca here if anywhere i thought might a bruised and tormented spirit find gradual peace i determined to move out of my hotel into some permanent lodging not for felicity not for any complete restoration of self-respect was i hoping only for peace a mezzano conducted me to a noble and ancient house of which he told me the owner was anxious to let the first floor it was in much disrepair but even so seemed to me very cheap according to the simple lucan standard i am rich i took that first floor for a year had it repaired and engaged two servants my padrona inhabited the ground floor from time to time she allowed me to visit her there she was the contessa adriano rizzoli the last of her line she is the contessa adriano rizzoli morpi we have been married fifteen years Maltby looked at his watch he rose and took tenderly from the table his great bunch of roses she is a lineal descendant he said of the emperor hadrian end of section 4